Matthew 23 will be the main text we look at. And we're looking at lesson five today. The plan is to really dive into lesson five. I do have a couple of things I want to say about lesson four. So you may want to go ahead and just kind of keep a marker there also. We're continuing uh, in our studies of the last week of Christ, looking at what happened on Tuesday. So we're a lot happened on Tuesday, a lot of teaching, a lot of conflict, a lot of debates. Uh, so we want to kind of just keep looking at Tuesday. This is a big day in the last week of Christ. Before we dive into that, will you bow your head with me and let's pray together. Almighty God, we are just so thankful, Father, to be here in this place, to live in this free country, to be able to worship you and bring you glory, Father. We count our blessings and, and we just want you to know we give you the glory for every good thing in our lives. Uh, Father, we are uh, mindful of our Savior, this, especially during this Bible class hour as we're looking at the last week of his life. We pray that you'll bless our study. We pray for the sick and the grieving among us. We pray for our country. We pray for our leaders, uh, Father, that you will uh, bless our leaders and that you will bless us to always uh, be able to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. Uh, no matter what, no matter what times we live in, Father, bless us to always be the kind of people you need us to be. Uh, Father, be with us today, uh, be with our elders, be with the Bible class teachers, be with our children. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we see we're on Tuesday, the teaching in the temple conflicts with the Jewish leaders. Remember the Jewish leaders? We kind of went through this last time. Uh, the chief priests, the elders the Herodians, uh, we looked in some detail, the Sadducees last time, and then you got the scribes and then the Pharisees, who so we're going to talk quite a bit about the Pharisees this morning. Tuesday, just to kind of remind you real quick, the fig tree, the withered fig tree representing uh, Israel, the fruitlessness of Israel, Jesus in the temple, the conflicts in the temple, the challenging of his Authority by the chief priests and the elders, challenging his cleansing of the temple on Monday. The Herodians trying to trap him with a question about taxes. The Sadducees trying to trap him with a question about the resurrection. A scribe of the Pharisees or a lawyer trying to trap him with a question about the greatest commandment. Jesus then posing a question to them about the descendant of David who would be the Lord of David and how that was possible. We talked about that. After those things, it doesn't appear they have any more questions for Jesus because he quiets them with his wisdom and his great knowledge. But there are a couple of things I want to say here about lesson four before we move on to the main part for this morning. And so in lesson four, question nine and Brother Jason actually already did this for me, and I appreciate it. Uh, said something about the widow, right? The widow. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time with this. I'll just give you a scripture reference. Mark 12, Mark 12, 41 through 44. This is found in Mark's account. Mark 12, 41 through 44. This widow is commended by Jesus. Somebody just give me the answer real quick. Why was she commended by Jesus? She did what? She gave all she had. So while she may not have given technically, 
technically as much as everybody else, the rich people who were in the, in the temple in, given into the treasury. She gave more in the eyes of God. She sacrificed more in the eyes of God. That's the, that's the point. It would be this, and look, I don't get involved in knowing what anybody gives in this congregation. It's not my business. It's between you and God, you and the Lord. All I know is what me and my wife give. That's all I concern myself with. That's all God wants me to concern myself with. But let's just do some hypothetical stuff. I mean, if you got somebody, you know, making 150000 a year or even 100000 a year, and they're putting in $50 in the plate every Sunday, can you really feel good about that? Is that really like that widow there? You think Jesus, if he was here just sitting around looking at everybody giving, and that took the, and he was like, he would commend you for that? No. Let's just be real. No. No, no, no. But if you got somebody who's making $200 a week, and they put in 75 or 80 bucks, you think Jesus is pleased with something like that? Compared to the income, that given compared to the, what the person is making. You better believe he is. That's the point. This is about sacrifice. You don't have to make a lot of money to sacrifice. And I know we like, you know, we like to say, you know, God loves a cheerful giver. And the Bible says that, but you can put a dollar in the plate and be a cheerful giver. That'd make you real happy. That ain't, it's more to it than just saying I'm happy when I put this dollar in here. It's about are you happy while sacrificing? Are you cheerful while sacrificing for the Lord from your bank account? That's a choice one has to make. And their heart must be right. This is about sacrifice. This is about generosity. This is a contrast that the Lord is making between this widow and these corrupt religious leaders. Remember, Jesus has been in conflict with these guys all day. All day long, they come to him with questions about money, about taxes. And Jesus has been dealing with these guys, and he doesn't commend them not one time. Who does he commend this day? The poor widow. Her heart was closer to God than the guys who knew the scripture so well. But that's what's going, that's what's going on here. That's what you got to see. The Lord on this controversial and just co co conflictful day, he commends one person. And it's the woman, the poor widow, who gave everything she had, even though it wasn't much at all. Her heart was right with God, and she gave all she had to the Lord. She gave more than everybody else because of her sacrifice. Now, so, so you got that incident going on there. But there's some other things that we, we don't have enough time to really talk about, but I do want to make mention of. In addition to all these debates and these discussions going on, Jesus is teaching a lot of parables on this day. Have you, did you notice that? A lot of parables being taught in the temple. And these parables all have to do with the same thing. They all have to do with the same thing that the fig tree had to do with. And that's what? Israel. All have to do with Israel. It's only, he, Jesus knows it's coming. Israel is going down. And all the parables have to do with Israel. Mark, there's Mark 12, the parable of the vine growers. That has to do with God's judgment on Israel. Matthew 21, the parable of the two sons. That has to do with God's judgment on Israel. 
Matthew 22, the, par the parable of the marriage feast, that has to do with God's judgment on Israel. The fig tree started all off, but Jesus keeps hammering at this all day long with these parables about God's judgment on Israel. And he's going to really hit the high point on this when we get to Matthew 24 and Mark 13. He starts talking about the signs that would precede Jerusalem's destruction. Now, if you want an explanation on these parables I just gave you, the parable of the vine growers, the two sons, the vine growers, the two sons and the marriage feast. I do have a video of that on the website. I did a whole series of lessons on the parables of Jesus. Now, there is a lesson about the judgment parables. The judgment parables on Israel. So I just wanted to make mention of that. Okay. Now, what we're going to look at for the rest of our time is the warning that Jesus gives to the crowds. There are some warnings that Jesus gives to the Jewish people while teaching at the temple. There are some woes. Matthew 23, the woe chapter. A lot of woes to the Pharisees. And then there's the warnings concerning the destruction of Jerusalem. So let me get these pictures here, too. Again, we're looking at Jerusalem. I just keep putting this up here so we can understand the significance of this city. This is an important city. This may be a little hard to see. Forgive me for that. Um, but, man, Lance, I see that why you turned the lights out that time on that one slide you had when you did your sermon. Sometimes you got to do that. But this right here is when I was in Israel, when I went to the Israeli museum, they have probably the best model. It took them a long time to make, but the best model of the city of Jerusalem, how the city of Jerusalem would have looked in the time of Jesus. So, again, you got to picture us like we were coming from the Mount of Olives, like we're all together right now. So we're coming from the Mount of Olives. OK, and we're going to go over the Kidron Valley together. And when we come into Jerusalem, we're going to come smack dab right to the temple. Right. When you cross the gate, there's the temple. So this is where everybody's going. This is where Jesus is going every day to the temple. Over here, you would have the Antonio Fortress. It would be somewhere up in here. That's where Jesus more than likely met with Pilate at the Antonio Fortress. They sent him across town somewhere over here, somewhere up in here to Herod because Herod's in town for the Passover. Herod sends him back to the Antonio Fortress. Caiaphas is over here. So when Jesus is arrested in Gethsemane, so we're kind of near Gethsemane from this perspective. He's going to go all the way back here to the house of Caiaphas. Caiaphas is going to bring him after the mock trials. They're going to bring him the next morning to the Antonio Fortress. Then he's going to be sent over here to Herod and Herod is going to send him back. And then after he's finally condemned, he goes over here outside of Jerusalem to be killed at Golgotha. So he's kind of just giving you a general idea where all this stuff is. And keep in mind, Jesus ain't walking 30 miles and 20 miles to these places. We're just talking about a few couple, a couple of miles here. I think sometimes we get this image that he's walking a long way carrying the cross while he is bruised and beaten. We're not looking at a very I've actually walked the, the, the walk and it about a couple of miles, but it's still a lot. Don't get me wrong, but I'm trying to give you, especially when you're beaten and bruised. But I'm just trying to give you an idea of what, what we're looking at here. 
We're not talking about walking across Phoenix, okay? It ain't like that. It's not even, walk, it's not even like walking across Chandler. It's, not, it's nothing like that, okay? So I'm just trying to, to get that in our heads. So I'm just going to leave that up there. So let's go to Matthew 23. Matthew 23. In the context of Matthew 23, verse 1 says, verse 1 says that Jesus is speaking to a crowd. You see that? He spoke to crowds and the disciples. When you look at Mark 12 in verse 35, which is parallel to this, Mark 12, 35, says that this crowd is at the temple. They're at the temple right now. So let's go to the questions here. And I want to say that as we look at this stuff, the Jesus, and obviously there's one Jesus, but I'm just using this language to prove a point. The Jesus of, that we read about in this chapter is a stark contrast to the Jesus that so many people want today. You know what I mean? You know, the, the, love, the Jesus is all about love. And don't get me wrong, Jesus is about love. But Jesus also, you know, he knew how to be very strong and very direct in his language. He was not a watered-down preacher at all. He wasn't like a Joel Osteen at all. He was a strong preacher. And if Jesus in our culture today preaching like this, many churches wouldn't want a preacher like that. A guy who would just go right at it and tell it like it is. That's the kind of preacher Jesus was. And you see that in this chapter, maybe above any other chapter. So let's look at some of the questions here, and, and then we'll use the last five minutes to... Uh, let anyone make any comments or uh, be thinking about those things. Jesus used a word, question one, to constantly describe the Pharisees. What was that word? Hypocrites. He called them hypocrites. The word hypocrite, well, let me just ask you, what does the word hypocrite mean? Anybody know what a hypocrite is? Yes, yeah, an actor. That's how it was used in ancient times. In the time of Jesus, it was more used to talk about actors, particularly stage actors. And it was used in a, in not so much like we use today always in a negative way. It was in a more positive way then, but Jesus here is using it very negatively. It's the idea of an actor. It's, an, it's the idea of someone who's a pretender. They are a fraud. They are someone who, who say one thing, but they do something else. That's what these men were. Here Jesus, by calling them hypocrites at the temple. My, I mean, picture this in your mind. This guy already cleansed the temple the day before. Made a big scene, Jesus did. And now he's been debating with them all day, and he just calls them hypocrites. Not even, things are so hostile. Now do you see how we're going to get to where we're at Friday? This is a hostile situation. Oh, man, absolutely. So let me say some things about the Pharisees, please. Let me say some things. The Pharisees of these religious groups, these religious sects at this time, of all of them, the Pharisees would be, we would call them in our time like the conservative. You know, we use that language, liberal, conservative. They were the conservatives. Of all the religious groups. And maybe we shouldn't overstate that too much because when I think of conservative, I think of conserving, just staying within the law or the doctrine. 
not going too far, not going too short, just staying right there in the doctrines. That makes sense. That's true conservatism. But the Pharisees went beyond that. They were condemned by Jesus, not because they tried to strictly follow God's law. Jesus never condemned them for that. In fact, he commended them for that. In Matthew 23, he said that when it came to dotting the I's and crossing the T's, they should have done that, but they neglected other stuff. They really weren't conservative enough. That's the, that's the truth about it. But the problem they had mainly was they had these traditions they came up with. And this is something we got to be careful of as Christians. They had these traditions that it wasn't anything wrong for them to have, but they binded them on other people as God's law. That was the problem. They did this in a couple of different avenues. They did it when it came to the Sabbath day. You know, when you study the Old Testament, the Sabbath day, the Sabbath day is a very generic law. It's a very generic law. You know, we, 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 we tend to think that God specified exactly how, how far they were to travel or couldn't travel on the Sabbath day. He did not. He did not. It's a very generic law. And the Pharisees came up with their own law for that. They had a specific amount of distance that one could travel on the Sabbath day before it was considered work. They came up with that, and it wasn't anything wrong for them to have that as far as their personal conscience goes, but they were buying that like this is law right here. This is God's law. And there was no book, chapter, and verse for, for what they came up with on that. You saw, we see them doing this with Jesus all the time. When Jesus is in the grain uh, field and the apostles are just basically taking the top off the peanut butter jar, you know, rubbing the grain in the grain field, they say that's work. They, def they define what work was. Jesus told them, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, meaning I made the thing. I think I know the rules for it. <laughs> I made the Sabbath. You don't tell me the rules for something I come up with. But that's what they did. They had these traditions. They were so bad about this that they had traditions about, you know, on the Sabbath day, you know, you couldn't, like, if you tied a knot so many times, that was work. I mean, they had these crazy traditions that was just out of bounds. Totally out of bounds. And Jesus constantly said that you neglect things like honoring your parents. You won't honor your parents. You won't use your money to help your needy parents. But then you want to say it's God's law to keep the tradition of the elders when it comes to washing hands. So that was a tradition. They made that God's law, but they neglected what God's law said about honoring your parents. That's how inconsistent they were. And Jesus exposed that on them. So they had these traditions, but another thing we need to understand about the Pharisees is the Pharisees, unlike the Sadducees, they took all the Old Testament seriously. Remember, the Sadducees really only took seriously the first five books of the Bible, Exodus through Deuteronomy. Pharisees weren't like that. They went much further than the Sadducees. They acknowledged the, the wisdom literature, the prophets, so that, so that they were different within the Sadducees on that. They were also different than the Sadducees on the fact they believed in the resurrection. Paul was a Pharisee. He believed in the resurrection before he became a Christian. It's all about how they interpreted Daniel chapter 12. Daniel 12 is one of the key chapters that talks about a resurrection. And the Pharisees believed in that. The Sadducees didn't. 
So, so you had that difference. They also believed in angels, unlike the Sadducees. They also believed in spirits, unlike the Sadducees. They also believed in the afterlife and the immortality of the soul, unlike the Sadducees. So there are some differences between them and the Sadducees. Now, they, are, they were called hypocrites by Jesus. They were pretenders. In fact, seven times in this chapter, seven times, they're called hypocrites. The Lord, if the Lord calls you a hypocrite, guess what you are? You're a hypocrite. If the Lord says it. Now, question two. What did the Pharisees love for people to do to them? What did they love for people to do? Praise them. Compliment them. Put them on a pedestal. Jesus says, and you look at verses 1 through 12, you know, as he, as he describes them, and the Lord describes the Pharisees here, they want to be viewed as religious authorities. We know the law. We're the experts. You need to listen to us. What we say, that's what should go. And if you don't listen to us, there's going to be consequences. I mean, there were some Jews, and you've read about this even in the Gospel of John so far. They were so scared of the Pharisees that they would acknowledge things that were absolutely true, like the power of Jesus to heal the blind, because they didn't want the Pharisees to throw them out the temple. So they, people were scared of them because they were religious bullies. That's what they were. They wanted to be reviewed as these religious authorities. Jesus said they taught the truth but didn't practice it. So that's the idea of a hypocrite. They taught one thing but didn't do it. They bound their traditions. We've made that point. They made an effort to look the part. You know, they wore these phylacteries. I'll show you what a phylactery is here in a little bit. They wore these phylacteries with the scriptures on them. And they had these garments. And they just, when you saw them coming, you would know that's a Pharisee. He's somebody important. Look what he, look what he has on. It's kind of like you see in many churches today, like the Catholic church or so, when people, you know, wear these special robes and things. So they, they want to look the part, at least in their mind. They love places of position. Jesus said they like to sit in the seat of Moses. That's literal. When you go to um, a tabernacle, not a tabernacle, but a synagogue, forgive me, a synagogue in places like Capernaum where I've been and, and, and Nazareth, they, archaeologists have found these little seats that they believe were the seats of Moses. These little seats that were placed in strategic spots in the tabernacles or in the synagogues, forgive me, in the synagogues that elevated certain people in the, in the synagogue. And, and that's what they wanted, the, the head seat. The chief, they wanted the chief seats, the seat of Moses. And they loved to wear these titles. And they wanted to go by these special religious titles. And Jesus, you know, he condemned that also. So they love praise from people. And let me just ask this question. Have you ever been guilty of that before? You ever been guilty of thinking about the approval of men before the approval of God? I'm going to tell y'all something. This is something that as a preacher I have to constantly remind myself of. When I get up to preach and teach, while you know, I hope people learn from the lesson, and, and, and I certainly appreciate all the encouragement I get from these beautiful, wonderful people in this place, my chief concern as a preacher should not be the praise of the congregation. It should be the praise and the, and, and, and the commendation from God. That's where my focus has to be, always first, 
above you has got to be God. Because men who don't have their focus on God first and on the people, they'll find themselves compromising for the people at some point. Tailoring their message for the people because they want praise and compliments from the people. My concern must be God always first. I have to preach the truth whether people want to hear it or not. So, and, and, and not just for preachers, it's got to be all of us. Anybody who gets up and does a Lord's Supper talk, leads a song, says a prayer, it shouldn't be, okay, I want to make sure I don't mess up so the people can think I'm so eloquent or I want the people to, you know, to really give me a compliment after I'm done. No, it's before I go up there, God, let this be to your glory. It's all about God. If I don't get one compliment from anybody, but God is pleased because I did my best for him, then that should be enough for me. I can sleep at night with that. I can, I'll be fine because God, you know, there's a lot of men who are getting praise from people in their congregations, but God's not happy at all. And if God's not happy, then, then you might as well not even preach. You might as well not teach. It's all about God. So look at something else here on question three. You know, we see this idea of wanting praise from men when it came to their prayers. Did you notice that? Did you notice what Jesus said in verse number five? Jesus said in Matthew 23, five, they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. They brought in their phylacteries. They lengthened the tassels on their garments. They had these little special tassels on their garments. Everything they did was about the people, never about God, from even their appearance. Go to Matthew chapter six. Matthew 6, you remember in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, in verse 1 of Matthew 6, Jesus said, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. That's your motivation. That's the idea of motivation. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. When you, go, when you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet. Don't go around telling everybody what you did. Let that be between you and God. Look at verse number 5. When you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites. There that word is again. The hypocrites are the Pharisees. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, like to make a big spectacle. Why? Not because they're trying to glorify God. They want to be seen by men. Jesus says, truly I say to you, they have their rewarding fool. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, pray to your father who's in secret, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Again, Jesus is not saying it's wrong for us to have public prayers in the assembly. The idea of motiva is motivation. Why are you praying? Why are you doing these things? Is it to get compliments and praise from people or is it to give glory to God? The motivation must be God. These men cared more about approval from men than from God. And that's something we got to be careful of. I got to be careful of that. We all have to be careful of that. Question four. How many times did Jesus say, whoa? How many did you count there? You got eight right on the money. Eight. There are eight times there. I wrote down one day the, what I saw here. Uh, I saw verse 13. He gave them a woe in verse 13. Let me get back there in my Bible back in Matthew 23. Verse 13 he woed them, and woe is just a word of big warning, big no-no. You don't want to hear God say woe to you. That means danger is coming for you, spiritual danger. He woed them because they were hypocrites, and they were shutting out people from going to heaven, saying, you're not going to heaven. When they weren't going to heaven, 
Nobody has a right to tell anyone they're not going to heaven. That's God's business. You try to shut people out of heaven. God will shut you out. And he shut these men out. These men thought they were on the path to heaven. God said, Jesus says, you're not going. If Jesus says you're not going, guess what? You're not going. That's what Jesus said. Verse 14. And I know this is in brackets in mine. So that means some manuscripts have this verse. Some don't. But I got verse 14 in my Bible. And he talks about them devouring widows' houses, taking advantage of the poor. Widows at this time who didn't have the luxury of having husbands who left them pensions and Social Security. At this time, when your husband died, you were on your own, especially if you didn't have kids. And these men were taking advantage of widows. And and at the same time, doing long prayers like they were so righteous, but robbing and taking advantage of, of widows. Devouring their houses. He woed them. Verse 15. He woed them because they would go through all this effort to do evangelism. We're going to go convert Gentiles to Judaism. And once he could, they converted them, they made them worse off than they were before they were converted to Judaism. They made them more corrupt. He woed them, verse 16, because they were blind guides. They legalized. They tried to legalize lying. Legalized lying. He said they, they did things like, well, if you swear by this, if you swear by this, then it's serious. You can't lie about that. But if you swear by this, then it's OK to lie about that. You, did you see what he said? You if you swear by the temple, that's nothing. But if you swear by the goal of the temple, OK, no, we got to take that seriously. They had different ways. They legalized lying. Had these little loopholes to lie. And we kind of do that, too. We talk about little white lies and stuff. Yeah, that's kind of that's the same kind of stuff. That's the same idea. Verse 23, he woed them because they would. He says they would tithe mint and dill and cumin. You know, but they would neglect the weightier things. You know, they would say, well, you know, we got to follow this this part of the law exactly precisely. But. They're not showing justice. They're not showing mercy. They're not showing those things. You know, it'd be equivalent to, to us saying, hey, you know, we, we got to make sure we don't sing with mechanical instruments. We got to make sure we do take the unleavened bread and fruit of the vine. But I'm going to hate you. I'm going to be unforgiving. I'm going to be unmerciful to, towards you. <laughs> Jesus does not condemn them because they tried to keep the law meticulously. He condemns them because they didn't do everything God's law said. Notice what he said. Verse 23, these things you should have done. You did right trying to tithe mint and dill and cumin. But you should also not neglect the other stuff, too. So the point is, if we're going to go with God, we got to go all the way with him. We can't just get the mechanical instrument things right and the Lord's Supper stuff right and, and all that stuff. We got to make sure we're doing everything God says, treating people right, loving people, doing all the things that God has told us to do. That's what Jesus said. He woed them for that. He talked about their inward corruptness, verse 25. You know, on the outside, they looked all great, 
But inside, they were full of robbery, self-indulgence. They were like dead men, dead men's bones. See, that's the thing about Jesus. Jesus knows what's going on in our hearts. I can only judge you by your actions. You can only judge me by my actions. I don't know what's going on in your heart. Jesus does, though. And Jesus says it's not enough just to do the outward stuff. We got to make sure the inward part is, is, is right with God. That's what Jesus sees. Inward, they had inward corruptness. The same ideas in verse 27, another woe, because they're inward corruptness. And then in verse 29, he talks, he woes them because of how they were in solidarity when it came to persecuting the prophets. You know, they built these, these big tombs to adorn the prophets. But they, their ancestors rejected the prophets. And they were being guilty of rejecting the prophet, Jesus Christ. They were just like their ancestors. So that's a lot going on there. That's question four. Um, I think where we are now is on question five. Um, the woes there, that's kind of just a discussion question there. In fact, that may bring us now to uh, the, the last part of the class, which is a time for you to talk a little bit. So let's start with this. How about we start with this, and then I'll take any other comments you may have. Of the woes announced by the Pharisees, and you don't, even, you don't have to give me three. You may have written three down in your book, and that's great. But somebody just shoot some out to me. Of the woes we've talked about, which ones really stood out to you and why? And there are eight of them. Does anybody have one you want to share? Uh, a woe that Jesus gives in Matthew 23 that really stood out to you and why? I wrote three down on mine, but I want to hear from you. Yes, yes, and then I get, oh, yes, yes, ma'am. And, and, and you don't mind speaking because we don't have, I have the mic. I'm sorry, but go ahead. You robbed me of a of a illustration I wanted to use in a sermon one day. No, but that's no. You're right. It's called, and you're right. The Thomas Jefferson Bible. You can actually buy one today. The Thomas Jefferson Bible is a Bible made by Thomas Jefferson, and Thomas Jefferson was like one of a lot of people think he's like intellects, and and he took out all the supernatural stuff out of the Bible. He took out all the supernatural stuff that had to do with Jesus. He, he thought Jesus was a good moral teacher. He liked his sermons. He liked his parables. But he did not believe Jesus could do miracles. So the Thomas Jefferson Bible is like our Bibles, except it's not like our Bibles in that it has no miracles in it. Because Thomas Jefferson believed in miracles. That's exactly right. He took it out and made his own Bible. Absolutely. You can Google that. You can actually buy one today. Good comment. Uh, anyone else? Brother Don, go right ahead, sir. And then Lance, I know you had some, sir. I can't recall that, sir. It's You're right. Not there. So they were taking their swearing by such and such beyond what the law said. What Jesus says is let your yes be yes and your no no. That's what the law says. If you make a vow, do it. Period. 
That's all over the Old Testament. Solomon even has that in his writings. And the book is in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, and that's what Jesus taught. That was the standard of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Whatever you say, you're obligated to keep your vow. We even see that in the judges when one of the judges made a vow, remember, by offering up his, his daughter or, or the first thing that came out of his house, if God gave him victory in the battle, what happened to be his daughter? So, and, he, and it seems like he, had, he did it. Uh, so, so absolutely. Uh, Lance, you had something, sir. Oh, anybody else have, Brother Gary, go ahead, sir. That's correct. What you're saying there is, is, is correct. I don't disagree with that at all. In the Old Testament, Don and I were talking about this. You know, we, you know I did a sermon a series video on the, Jesus being the shepherd, the good shepherd. He, and, and God in the Old Testament condemned the religious leaders because they were not good shepherds. They led the people down a path of destruction, and they were primarily responsible for the people's lack of knowledge, of good knowledge of the Bible. And that's even going on here because when these men are binding their traditions as equal to God's law, well, they're not educating the people correctly on God's law. You can't bind a man-made tradition and convince people that it's equal to God's law and at the same time educate them properly. It doesn't work that way. So they are a big reason why Israel became the fruitless fig tree because of the things they stood for and promoted. That is absolutely I don't agree, disagree with that at all. One, one quick thing, John. Yes, sir. Jeremiah 23 talked about that. Uh, Jeremiah said, Woe to the shepherd who destroys, scatters the sheep from my pasture. Yep. No, that was Jeremiah 23. What was that again, sir? 23.1. Yes. And, keep, and this was going on even before these little groups came along. But, it, but we see it all through the Old Testament, like you said. It was part of the reason why they went into captivity. And it would be part of the reason why they would be destroyed by the Romans later, because the people were being led by bad shepherds. The principle, and the principle still true today, even when it comes to local churches. So let's stop right there. Good thought. We'll pick up with question six. Question six next.